Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. So welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast. Uh, this is episode seven. Seven. Wow. Uh, I can't believe we've made it this far. My mom watching these videos. Is Number really six out. was, we hit that one out of the park. Yeah, we did. That We had the Stellas, and, and uh, we've got a couple other ones coming up uh, pretty can soon. Can we sustain? That's the question. Can no, we sustain? No, no, we no. cannot. It's well, over. We'll try. We're going to. All right. We should just wrap it up. Um, but we're, no, we're not going to do that. We actually have a pretty exciting uh, day mm-hmm. today. Uh, we are, it's kind of a forensic mental health day. Mm-hmm. We have uh, a couple of guests. Uh, one is a patient, uh, Brian, who we, uh, Brian Rose, we have uh, kind of grown a relationship, developed a relationship over the last couple of years. Brian's uh, story, I'm just going to uh, give the Coles Notes version. So Brian is from a, a place, uh, southwestern Ontario, called uh, Delhi, which is just south of Brantford. Uh, it's in uh, Norfolk County. And uh, he came to Ontario's shores via the forensic mental health system. So uh, despite being quite ill uh, in his adolescent years, um, abusing substances, uh, he's, uh, he ran into a bit of trouble, uh, didn't get the help he needed, uh, unfortunately resulted in the death of his grandmother. He was, uh, he was found not criminally responsible. It was about four and a half years ago now. So he spent a couple years in jail. He went to Waypoint, which is one of our partner specialty mental health hospitals. And then uh, about two years ago, he came here. And uh, I mean, I, I've worked closely with him, but you yeah. know him too. He's, he's a great guy. Yeah, he's a great guy. And uh, he's worked uh, tremendously hard on his recovery. Mm-hmm. And it's a, you know, forensics has always been a tough one for us to discuss. It's always been sort of a... You know, it's just, it can be sensitive. You know, there's a lot of dynamics to, in this case, you know, with family and, and, and how people see, you know, or believe his path should go, um, where he should be. And, and I think it's, but it's good having these conversations. I think we, we were always afraid to have them in the past, but I think, you know, when you look at the forensic mental health system and the success it has, and we talk about statistics all the time, but you know, the recidivism rate for someone going through forensic mental health is like 10 to 13, 14%, where criminal justice system's 44%. Mm-hmm. So it is a, it does have success. And I think, you know, it's hard for people just to kind of understand that these people are ill, you know, and, and through help, you know, they can lead very productive lives. Yeah. And they just, and if you go to, you know, and I always say, like, people react to these types of things after the fact, but if you look at each of these cases, you can go back and say, we missed it. We can go back in the history and say, if we only got to these people, we could have prevented these things. And I almost feel like it's a systemic failure more than the failure of the individual. Yeah, and specifically in Brian's case, there's uh, there's two incidents, but there's several instances where... <laughs> Sorry, You're turn your phone. phone. Yeah. <laughs> it's a new phone. Uh, the notifications have a mind of their own. I've kept. I've kept trying to. That was to corral to, it, but it's not working. So it may go off repeatedly at any time. <laughs> that was the warning for you to stop talking. <laughs> but in Brian's case, there were uh, when he was going through his his criminal proceeding and eventually adjudicated NCR. There was a couple incidences that 
you know, he clearly slipped through the cracks right. where he was delusional and he uh, um, was arrested and released. There was one time where he was released from hospital and he walked barefoot, I think it was for two hours in a bush on his way home. Like there were signs and uh, he, you know, to his credit, he's not here speaking publicly to blame, point fingers at, no. at police or uh, acute care hospitals. Uh, he he sincerely wants to see a change, mm -hmm. and uh, he's been working uh, working hard not only on his recovery, which has led to him being discharged into the community, but uh, he's, he speaks publicly for events that we host. Yep. Um, him and I are actually presenting at the Ontario Hospital Association Conference uh, uh, next month. He is uh, kind of dedicating this kind of next phase of his life to helping make a difference in mental health. Right. That's so. great. And so we had to, we're going to have the opportunity to sit down and talk to him. One of the great things he's doing, um, which I think is very brave, and you don't see a lot of it um, with patients in general, especially forensic mental health patients, is he is going back to his community. We actually went there in the summer, and we spent today talking to a reporter, somebody that I used to work with. I used to live in that area. Um, and just telling his story and giving people an, up, uh, an update on his recovery that he, you know, he was found in CR, and that's not where Brian's story ended. And um, he's pretty brave because, regardless of how we, you know, how proud we are of him, people won't understand. Um, people will think sure. he still belongs in jail. And um, but uh, he, I think it's a pretty, um, pretty bold step that he's making. It is, and I mean, it's 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 hard for someone to be able to, you know, especially you mentioned it's a small community to, to say that. And, and, you know, there are people that aren't going to react well to it, but, but I think as long as we st keep having the conversation, that's the only way we're going to change things. And, and like we said, you know, there's a lot of people that do understand and support and you've got to focus on that. You know, there's people you'll never change their minds, right? They're, they're kind of won't see it any other way, but but we have to have this conversation. We were always kind of, again, afraid to, to talk about it um, because it's a tough conversation at times. But, it, you know, for us, it's something that we provide. It's a service we provide, and we have great stories of recovery and people doing great things, and we need to be able to share those. Yeah, and it's great. There's Are my phone again. again. <laughs> the, uh, it won't be the last time you hear it. But... Um, and it's great to have that other perspective. Have a reporter, Daniel R. Pierce from the Simcoe Reformer, which is part of the Post Media Group. So Brian's story, when it uh, is published, which is hopefully next month, uh, it will appear in uh, all sorts of papers in, uh, at the very least, southwestern Ontario. And it was great. To, it's going to be great to have Dan here to kind of see what he's experienced right. um, in trying to tell Brian's story. He's been working on it for months. Uh, I know he's been. There's my phone again. Can he's we? Been, can we fire? Daryl, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a fireball offense. It could be having your phone on during a podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to be patient, but the uh, it's adding levity, if nothing else. Yeah. But uh, it's going to be great to have Dan here to offer that kind of unique perspective of uh, he actually covered the trial yeah. that uh, uh, led to Brian being found NCR, and uh, he's firmly entrenched in the community where Brian lives and has a kind of his finger on sure. the pulse of how the community might react to Brian's yeah, story. And kudos to him because you know often. The, the story doesn't get told, right? It's usually sort of the very surface. It's the court. It's the it's the police brief. It's the headline, and in, in most cases where we do we see stories about mental illness, the the voice of the person with the illness is never told, mm -hmm. and and that's unfortunate. You know, we never have that side of it to properly understand. It's usually just very surface 
sort of journalism for for a lot of reasons, right? Um, you know, it could, they can be sensational. They don't have the resources, but for for Dan to 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 do the story and, and get you know dig a little deeper is great. Yeah, I can't wait. Uh, I can't wait to talk to both of them, and I can't wait for the story to come out. Even though you know my expectations are tempered, not only because it is it's not going to be you know strictly. Uh, Brian's story. I mean, it has to be balanced. Yeah, it's got to be fair, it's and, be and hopefully, it's a, a objective. But uh, hopefully, it can provide a voice, like you say, that very seldom gets one. Right. And uh, so, I think what Brian's doing is commendable. So, um, we're happy to have Brian uh, and Dan on the podcast. So, hope you guys enjoy the enjoy these uh, interviews. So we're happy to have Brian with us today, joining the podcast. Uh, Brian, you. welcome, first of all. Thank you. And uh, personally, it, it's a lot of, I take a lot of pride in having Brian on. We've done yeah. a lot of work together, and uh, you've shared your story here at Ontario Shores many times. Uh, you've blogged for us. You've, yeah, you're, we're going to be doing something at the, uh, a conference for the Ontario Hospital Association next month. And uh, we're here actually working on something um, with a reporter from your hometown, and yes. uh, we'll, we'll maybe can talk, tell us a little bit about that. Like what, uh, what are you, what are you doing with uh, Dan from the Simcoe Reformer? Um, we're just talking about my recovery journey and trying to uh, open up like um, the like the movement of mental health awareness in my community. I'd like to see people more educated and understanding about what happened and. Uh, try and see more resources uh, come into effect. And where you're from, I'm familiar with. I used to work there many years ago, actually with uh, the reporter that uh, you're talking to today. And uh, it's, a, it's a small community. And you're, the tragedy with you and your grandmother and your illness, it was big news. Um, and uh, probably divided a community in some respects. Like, or how do you kind of balance the fact that maybe people aren't ready to hear what you have to say? Um, you just have to be open and understanding that people do have their opinions and you have to understand where they're coming from. I come from a very conservative community in uh, Delhi. Um, it's a working farming community and uh, I understand where they're coming from. That's, I just think you have to be open-minded about the whole situation. It was a tragedy and it was very hard for some people to understand but hopefully in time with the mental health movement people will be more understanding and how did you feel i mean before you first sort of told your story i mean there had to be a lot of anxiety and and worry about that what, what was the realization once you actually told the story compared to what you thought might happen when before you did it um Sorry, what was the question? Well, just were you fearful of, okay, if I tell the story, this is going to happen? And did you find it to actually be more positive, actually, once you actually told your story? Yeah, I was a little bit afraid at the time. I thought it was going to be very negative and stuff. But the way um, Dan, the reporter, has been interviewing me and stuff, it's, it's more hopeful. And uh, it's, it's about the movement. It's, it's about trying to understand and trying to make... Um, people more aware of mental health diagnoses. Right. Right. When you're telling your story in the community, you were actually just telling me about uh, in your training, 
last week that you um, you're training to be a peer support specialist. That's what you want to do. You want to give back to people who are struggling and living with mental illness. And uh, you kind of waited to tell your story to kind of open up with all the details. And then the reaction you got was pretty remarkable. It was overwhelming. I, I took a OPDI training and one of the facilitators there was actually from Port Dover, right around where I grew up. And I waited till the fifth day of training. It was a five-day training. And I actually talked to the, um, the staff at OPDI whether I should tell it or not. And they said, it's up to you. And so the fifth day, I finally opened up and told my story. And people were overwhelmed. And they, four, of the, um, four of the peers that I was taking the course with actually came up and gave me a hug. Hmm. So it was very nice. The support that you, we just experienced it here, the support that you've gotten at Ontario Shores, I think uh, you, you talk about quite often. Um, your recovery is, you know, started once you, you, know, you were found not criminally responsible. You went to Waypoint, and uh, then you, were, you, you came here, and you've really built a lot of relationships with patients and staff here. Um, what's you know, that support meant to you? It's, it's really, like, it's, it's awesome. It's overwhelming, like to have that family here because my family growing up it was very um i don't know the right word but dysfunctional like um there's a lot of alcoholism and abuse going on um to have a healthy family here of patients and staff that are just growing it's it's remarkable i, lo I love it here this is where i want to be and uh i think a career and peer support would be an excellent avenue for me to go through and, and it seems to be um anyway, we found it in telling patient stories that you know often people can get caught up you know with 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 your story you know the headline behind you know they don't see people as people and when you get to meet someone like brian or get to see your story and get to listen to you i mean it personalizes things and i think when more people that hear f about you as a human being it sort of tears away that stigma or that perception because I think a lot of people in a case like that they can't relate mm -hmm. they don't understand because unless it's Im impacted them they don't understand mental illness yes and I'm I'm diagnosed with schizophrenia which is a heavy diagnosis like I find people understand anxiety and maybe um, depression but when it comes to bipolar and schizophrenia mm -hmm. people don't want to deal with it mm -hmm. like the fact that you could have audio auditory hallucinations Right. Um, people don't want to deal with that. And, um, and the whole tragedy of the whole thing is like falling through the system, like mm -hmm. the cracks of the system. It's, it's a tough situation, but I am a person and I have a lot of love in me and I'm not who what I did or I'm not what I did. I'm, right. I'm Brian. I'm, I've lived a decent life. I went to university. I worked hard my whole life and it's just something that happened, like mental illness took over my life and there wasn't a lot of help, but I'm hoping to change things with sharing my story. And we talk about that and it's, it's unique to mental illness, right? We talk about the more ill you get with, with cancer, for example, the more empathy and understanding mm -hmm. people have. Mental illness is the opposite. People can get Bell Let's Talk and, and, and adolescent mental health and anxiety, but the more ill, the less people want anything to do with that. And it's, it's unique. I can't think of any other illness where the more ill you get, the more people pull well, away. Brian and yeah. I kind of joke that, 
you know, because we both grew up in small communities, somebody gets sick, they fall ill, whether it's cancer or another critical illness, people are coming over and saying, can I help with the kids? Yeah. Here's a lasagna, right? <laughs> yeah. When you're diagnosed with schizophrenia, nobody was bringing lasagnas no. to the farm, right? Yeah. Like, I'm still it, waiting for my lasagna. <laughs> <laughs> that stuff doesn't happen, right? Like, and even yeah. though it's like, it's a life-threatening illness, it's something yeah. that, you know, it's, it's, it's a critical illness and people just... You know, we're not we're not there yet. But I'm sure, you know, even in your time here in the last couple of years, uh, as you kind of transition into being an advocate for people living with mental illness, you probably noticed a bit of a shift uh, positively towards people's attitudes around mental health. Yeah, things are changing. Um, I hope to see a paradigm in the whole mental health movement. I hope people can see it like acute illness. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple more things before we let you go. I was just, you know, what you're doing with Dan and the, and your hometown paper, I think, is incredibly brave. You know, it's uh, you're putting it out there. You're being honest. Um, people, you know, how people receive it, we'll see, right? Like, you know, like hopefully, hopefully at the at the end of the day, um, some people or percentage of people will see that you know the the effort you've made. Um, What's kind of like, what are you hopeful of, realistically, of what the article back in your hometown might, might do to people's perception? I'm hoping to see a little bit of compassion and understanding. Um, I know that there will be a few that um, will not like to hear that I'm doing well, but I hope there is compassion with a lot of people that maybe are sitting on the fence. Great. And the one thing always, I always, you know, be cognizant of, and we, we're in the media and we do a lot of social media, is, is sometimes, you know, it, it can bring out the, the worst people or the worst in people. So sometimes the commentary that you hear isn't necessarily representative of how everybody feels. So, you know, even if there's negative comments to know, there's a lot of people that support you that may not be out there saying things, but behind the scenes really yeah. have compassion for you. And I just want to add, from your perspective too, to kind of ask, um, how's it been for your kind of mental wellness to be able to tell your story now? Does it does it does it feel like a, a weight's been lifted that you're able to freely talk about this and not sort of internalize it? Yes, definitely. I uh, I feel as if um, it's the right thing to do in my grandmother's memory. Her name's not in vain when I when I'm sober and sharing my story and living a life that's a life she'd want me to live. Mm. Um, it's a very uh, upsetting topic for me, but because I loved her. I really love my grandmother. And um, um, it's just, when I think about it, it's just very upsetting to me. But at least we're moving forward, and I have a lot of love and support from here in Ontario Shores and also... Um, I have an excellent mother. Like my mother has, I put her through hell, and she's stuck behind me, and she's she's there for me, and I mm. love her to pieces. And mm. at the end of the day, that's who really matters to me is my mom. This will be the last thing I ask you. <laughs> but you are you've recently been discharged uh, from the hospital. You're now a, what we consider to be a, an outpatient, so you're still receiving support. But uh, you're, you've got an apartment, and uh, you've got some of your the freedoms back that you've been waiting six and a half years for. And I wonder if you could tell people, because people hear that, right? They associate you with the tragedy of your grandmother's death, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, to them, it might feel like, oh, you're, you're out, right? Even though we know that's not the truth. Can you, 
give just since your time here in or your time in the mental health system. So when you went to Waypoint to when you got here, give people an idea of the work that you've had to put into your own recovery. I had to put in a lot of work. Um, a lot of times you don't have to public speak. You don't have to do anything. You can just lay in your bed every day. But I got up every morning and worked hard physically and, and mentally. And I took groups, programming, public speaking, um, podcasting, doing everything I can just to, to make a difference in the world. Um, my journey has been hard, and uh, I never want to go back there. So I'm making sure I'm on my meds. I, I made sure I wasn't in any conflict, any fights, made in all my check-ins, doing everything I had to do to move through the system. And it's hard at times, but I'm finally here. Well, great. We're, nobody's more proud of you than the communications department on Ontario Shores. <laughs> and you've done a lot of work for us. And uh, we appreciate you taking time today. And uh, all the best. Yeah. Thank Thanks, you. Brian. So we're pleased to have, from the Simcoe Reformer, a place I used to work, actually, uh, Daniel R. Pierce. We're going to call him Dan for the benefit of the podcast, but he's a reporter who's been working with one of our patients uh, on a story back in his home community. So thanks for, thanks for joining us, Dan. Well, thanks and making for having the, me, guys. Yeah. And feel, the trip free to to sh- feel free to share any stories that you've heard <laughs> in the past of him at the Reformer. Well, not, probably not too many, but <laughs> I hope anyways. So uh, you're here today. We've uh, done a few things with Brian. You're, it's the second time you're interviewed. and You've been working on uh, a piece, which I assume is bigger than just Brian, maybe mental health as a whole in your community. Can you talk a little bit about... Uh, kind of the journey you've been on since we first kind of connected back in July. Yeah, well, since I uh, met uh, met Brian in the park and we had that talk, I, I've uh, been out trying to talk to other experts, and you, you continue to hear the same thing, the same thing that Brian says about the need for more resources and more understanding and more preventative uh, uh, programming out there for people with mental health issues. and So you don't end up in a situation where somebody's committing a serious crime. Anyway. Sorry about that. Um, maybe for like for the benefit of our audience, assuming we have one at this point. <laughs> we do. But uh, can you give people a sense of the community that you and Brian are from, and and how big of a story uh, this tragedy was in the community uh, at that time? Well, it, it was a massive story. Uh, anytime you get a, and again, it's very sensational. Let's be honest; it's a very sensational story. It's big headlines. And people are following it. And it, there was a, a provincial and national following for this story, to be honest. Mm. Um, uh, the story, see, I covered, to clarify for the audience here, I've, I covered this issue right from day one. I was there at the farm the day of, and I covered the trial. And I was there for almost every single one of Brian's, uh, you know, court appearances. Um, so it, it has, this case has a very high profile. And it's only fitting to have this kind of follow-up because it had a big... Uh, a big profile three, four years ago. Well, here's the follow-up to that. Right. And, 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 and thank you very much for, for doing the follow-up. I, you know, I think we all worked in the media, and I think it's easy to kind of cover something after, but you rarely see people go back and look at the lead-up, right? You know, um, there's a tragedy happened or something happened. But, and again, resources and all the, the things that are really hard to do, but there's such a, there's such a story before that, right, of, how did that happen? What, what failed? 
What are the things that led up to that to properly understand the context of an event? Yeah. Well, it's certainly during the trial, there was lots and lots of evidence of how uh, Brian and his family, <coughs> excuse me, had sought out help and couldn't get it. And then there was a famous incident where Brian was waving a pickaxe out on the road and he was actually in, uh, uh, in a hospital for a while mm -hmm. and they let him out and, and then he committed the violent act. Right. Um, uh, and the question is, you know, where did we fail as a system here? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, going back to that time when you're covering the trial uh, and the time up to when we met in the park in July, what was the difference you saw just in, in Brian physically from the time that he was in making that initial few court appearances to uh, where he was in a much healthier place in life? Well, something I've thought about actually because those very initial court appearances, uh, Brian was a different person than you see today. He had, he had long, my recollection is he had long, scraggly hair and a beard and was sort of looking around the room. And uh, um, it was clearly somebody who uh, maybe had some mental health issues going on. Uh, and, and then as the trial progressed, uh, you know, he became this cleaned up, slim, you know, young man wearing a suit and acknowledging everybody in the courtroom. And, uh, and then, uh, of course, uh, meeting him uh, today and meeting him this summer, uh, you know, very articulate person. And, uh, a, a total change from that. For, first time I ever saw him in the, mm -hmm. I think it must have been in bail court. And uh, compared to who he is today as two totally different people. How do you feel that, you know, that this story will be received when it does come out from your community? <laughs> I, I know it's a very conservative community, and you know that mm -hmm. because you've lived there for a while and worked with us there in Simcoe. Um, I, I think you'll see a mixed reaction. Uh, some people have already told me they think that this isn't right. They think Brian should be in jail, you know, should never get out. It, you know, it's still a murder, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, but the, we ha there is a movement afoot in our community uh, in Norfolk County for uh, better mental health. There are people who are advocating for that, mm -hmm. and they are gaining traction, and we do have some mental health services available, and it, it's, it's growing. Uh, that awareness is growing, and I think people are, are coming to accept it, and I think a lot of people will accept, you know, the article. And I think it's, <clears throat> it's hard for people to, I mean, everybody wants to put their lens you know, if something happens, well, I, you know, they want to understand it. And I think where we run into trouble with, with these types of sentinel events is people like, how did he not know what he was doing, right? Or how could someone, because they can't mentally think of that place where someone is so ill that they would do something like that. And they want to sort of wrap it up in a neat box to understand it. But um, how do we, you know, through the media, how do we do a better job of, of helping people sort of understand the complexity of, of mental illness. Um, is there something that, you know, and again, I don't think it's, I don't want to put everything on the media. Yes, I think it stands responsibility. No, no, but, you know, we've had talks about, you know, and, and different media outlets, you know, like your paper's going to be totally different than the Toronto Sun. We, we all yeah, know, yeah. you know, there's different, I, I don't, and we came from the media, and I, I, I have a, like, I didn't know half what I knew. As, a, as someone in the media, as, as they do now, and how do we maybe collectively do a better job to support media to better understand the complexities of these issues? Uh, yeah, that's a big question, <laughs> but, but you know, it's a matter of building those relationships, right? Like yeah. even what we're doing here today, I've, yeah. I've made contacts here. I have some background information. There's people I can call as well, mm -hmm. you know, and maybe mental health people have to do. Uh, 
uh, sort of some upfront work where, where they make contact with editors and reporters ahead of time before something like this happens. Yeah. So they know who to call and have some background information about the, the issues. Yeah, I think it lies with us. I, you know, in the, in the past when I came here, you know, people would see something and they'd claim stigma. And I'm like, well, I think most reporters, and they, they want to do a good story. They want to do the right thing. They want to cover it properly. But they're asked to do so many things. In today's <laughs> yeah. age, like, you know, the person that might be covering courts might be covering municipal politics and sports and everything. And it's not easy to somehow pick up and understand the NCIR or the Forensic or the Ontario Review Board. Off the, and I think we have to do a better job of supporting the media and understanding. That's, yeah, that, that's probably a good idea. And you do, you do have an understanding of how the media works today. I mean, when... Uh, uh, Daryl, when you worked with us, we had like eight reporters in our newsroom, and now yeah, we have three. Yeah. You know, and that's very standard across all newsrooms it in is. North America, mm-hmm. and uh, and that means less resources. You have to focus your resources a little bit more carefully. And fortunately, my editors made it available for me to come here and mm-hmm. be able to put time into this. Yeah, that's great. You, you mentioned uh, when we were talking earlier today, and uh, and via email that you have experience, a lot of experience covering in the courts, covering uh, news in the courts. And also with the mental health piece, uh, have you seen kind of an evolution in mental health in the courts in, in your time covering, or what like what kind of stands out in those in the years of being a reporter in in the court system? Yeah, well, I've covered uh, quite a bit of court. I don't get the, there as as often as I used to, and I see a lot of different types of court stories. Yeah, you can have a big murder or whatever. You can have a shoplifting charge, and somebody is in front of a judge on a shoplifting or drinking and driving. But what's interesting is that this theme keeps coming out again and again of mental illness. or um, and, and maybe they're not declared, you know, NCR, but it's still a mental health issue where, where, where people have a lapse of judgment and they do something really stupid. And sometimes people say, you know what, I did something really stupid. I'm going to plead guilty and, and get some you know, counseling and, and pay a fine and then move on with my life or whatever the case uh, you know, may be. But I, I think you know, defense lawyers more and more start talking about mental health and crime as well. And the number batted around is something like 20 to 25% of all crimes have a mental health issue underneath. Maybe it's more than that. Um, and then if you look at the provincial jail system, our provincial jail system is terrible and through no fault of the people running the jails, they, again, they don't have the resources. And so people who have mental health issues will get arrested and convicted or, and uh, they're put into a, a terrible jail or they're just staring at a wall with, with other people who are maybe in the same situation they are in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we definitely need to do, uh, we need more resources. That's what I see. Um, all, all the time. You talk about what has changed in the court. I, more and more, um, when you go into bail court in Simcoe every day, there'll be someone from CMHA, Canadian Mental Health Association. There's one or two women who are always in there no matter what. And, and I know them and they know me and they'll say, who are you here for? And I'll tell them and I'll say to them, who are you, who are you here for? And they'll say, well, nobody in particular, but you know, our, one of our clients will be here today. Mm-hmm. You know? right. And more often than, than not, they are. Yeah, and I think there's there's a perception in the community, and I kind of wanted to, to address that too, is, you know, um, I think people think, you know, not criminally responsible is a way, you know, people use it. They see it on TV as, you know, a way to get out of jail, and I know that I think 0.001% of cases or criminal cases are adjudicated NCR, so it's a very rare process that it, that it happens, but there's that feeling. But the reality is, you know, for a lot of people, for minor crimes, and most people in the forensic system have committed minor offenses, but... 
it's probably quicker to go through the, the jail system, right, than it is to go through yeah. the mental health system yeah, where it, you're attached for it, a very it, long time. It's interesting you, you say that. I didn't really want to bring that, but I've seen a few cases where uh, I felt the person was clearly NCR and they were their own best witness. Um, but their defense lawyer wouldn't go that route because, uh, you know, you've already spent a couple of years or maybe a year in jail waiting for this big trial. You're getting a two for one credit. And then in the federal penitentiary system, there's kind of a two thirds release. You start doing the, the math on a manslaughter mm -hmm. conviction and you're actually better off to, you know, plead guilty to uh, a serious crime in some cases because with NCR, you may never get out. There's no guarantee that you will yeah. get out. So from a time, it's better off from a time perspective, but the problem is, you know, what yeah. somebody's done serving, they're going out without any supports or, and, and they're just going to be in this cycle because there's nothing there to support they're them. They're help. not getting any better. Right? Yeah, the question is, is, is their mental illness recognized when they get into the penitentiary system? And, and what kind of help is offered? I don't know. Yeah, I don't have I those would, answers. I would, uh, I would say Brian would probably say no <laughs> <laughs> from my experience in talking to him. As like, far as the you know, when you're, like, you know, and looking at his particular case, waiting to be adjudicated NCR, um, you know, I, I think his situation, I mean, he would speak better yeah. to it than, than I could, but he wasn't getting the support he needed. It wasn't until they got the NCR verdict that, he, you know, his recovery could begin. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah that, that's correct. And, you know, uh, the, if I recall correctly, the charge was first-degree murder. And in Canada, if you're convicted of first-degree murder, uh, th th there's no tempering around with uh, where you're going to go. You're just sent right away to the bad penitentiary. And that's a, it's assumed that you, uh, you've committed the worst crime possible, and now you're going to be punished. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, so, so, so think of that, you know. Uh, so you're really rolling the dice if you don't get that NCR then you're really mm. lost uh, wrapping up here just one last thing uh, being so familiar with this case uh, and, and Brian and uh, and what it went to your community and like you said even provincially and nationally what's this process been like for you getting to know Brian again or you know yeah. making those calls like what's what's that experience been like well it, it's been really interesting I've, I've learned a lot from it and uh uh, being a person who cover who has covered a lot of court, it's sort of rounded out that experience. Um, uh, covering the trial, we were talking about that earlier today. It was very draining. When you cover a trial, it's almost like you're part of it, and uh, it's emotionally exhausting, uh, mentally draining. Uh, um, you know, and I and it, it's kind of strange for me because I feel like I know Brian now. <laughs> I, I've been through all this, and I've interviewed him, and it's like I'm reporting on somebody I know. You know, it's not just an other out there. Well, thank you very yeah. much for coming today appreciate to, to uh, meet Brian again and tour our facility and for being on our podcast. We uh, appreciate it greatly. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> We're number one in Norfolk County. We know the Yeah.